Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. So this morning we begin or re-begin our study in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we looked at some of the background information of Mark last week, uh, things that might seem like they aren't important, but I want to walk back through those again because they are important. Um, These aren't just facts for us to memorize and to be clever with, uh, but these are things that we need to know when studying this book uh, because it tells us why Mark was writing the way that he did. And so the very first thing we could say is that um, the book of Mark is most likely, and we're going to teach it and study it as though, these are the words of Peter. Now that sounds strange, except for Peter's not the one that hand wrote this book. John Mark, or uh, we see Mark mentioned in the book of Acts, we see him, he is a relative of Barnabas, um, In Acts, we read this, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed or preached the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, and here's our Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who who had withdrawn from them. See, previously, and here's an important piece of information, Mark was someone that, for whatever reason, decided not to go on mission with Paul and Barnabas. He stayed behind. Uh, We pick up from this text and then another text later on that Paul was not happy with this Mark. In fact, it led to something else happening. And And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Paul and Barnabas. Brothers in the faith, friends who had gone all over the known uh, Mediterranean world at that time, and they separated over this one guy, Mark. Why? Most likely because Barnabas and Mark were related to one another. Also, most likely because Barnabas was going to show a little bit more grace to this Mark who had messed up in the past. We also see reference to Mark himself in his gospel, and we'll be studying that much later on. We also, just from little hints in the text, but also historical details, that not only were Mark and Barnabas related, but potentially even Peter and Barnabas were related. And here we have our connection, that when Mark separated Uh, or rather when Paul separated from Barnabas and from Mark, uh, later on he met up with Peter. Uh, And so there we go, okay? That's that's kind of the short detail of what's going on. Who is this Mark character and why we're going to say that he's the one that wrote it and yet these are the words of Peter. Um, Also, we can kind of say that this is probably one of the first of the four Gospels written, if not the first Gospel written. And then strangely enough, this Gospel was not written to Jews. It was written to Gentiles. This is actually a Gospel that was prepared to be sent to the church in Rome so that they could understand more who Jesus was. 
See, Paul's feeding them the theology, and yet they needed to know who the person of Jesus was as well. And this gospel is meant to help them understand, who are these people, the Jews, really? What did they believe about this man who is God, (laughs) called Jesus? And so that is the purpose of this letter. Mark seems to be writing in a way uh, to people that are unaware of Jewish customs. And he wants them to understand these customs so that they can understand who Jesus is and understand that he is the fulfillment of all these customs. Last week, uh, we also looked at verse 1. I'm just going to ramble through this real quick, okay? Uh, But in verse 1, Oh, wait, sorry, I'm just getting way ahead of myself. Apologize. I, you know, a week off, one week off of preaching like this, and I'm, I'm back to square one. I'm back to square one. As we study Mark together, we're going to be looking at three big themes. Okay, three big themes. The first of which is a king, and who that king is, specifically. Uh, and we're going to see who that king is, and why that king seems to be wandering around in the desert, and not sitting on a throne, and why that king goes to a cross instead of setting up a political kingdom. Okay? So we're going to be studying a king, who he is. We're also going to be looking at this king's kingdom. Because is a king a king without a kingdom? No. <laughs> is a kingdom a kingdom without a king? No. And yet we're going to see that this kingdom takes on a very unique flavor. Because if you look around us, uh, I don't see everyone bowing to Jesus and Jesus on a throne and everything working out perfectly, right? In fact, we could even say that things aren't getting better. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus' kingdom is all about. So we're going to be looking at a king, looking at his kingdom, and what that looks like, what it means, what it means for us as the church today. We'll be diving headfirst into that next week. And then we're going to be looking at discipleship. That is following. Um, The word discipleship actually just means someone that is taught by someone else, a disciple. But in this case, uh, Jesus is not a teacher that stands behind a podium and holds still, right? He's moving. His word is moving. His actions are moving. In this, in this uh, gospel, we see the word immediately pop up all the time, okay? And that's because this, this gospel is all about movement. And so, discipleship is a following of Jesus. And it's a constant and a continual call for us as Christians. It's a constant and continual call. And then as we look at these first 11 verses today, here's our big idea, okay? Here's our big idea. You have been called to repentance, but here's the beautiful part, with the promise of forgiveness. You have been called to repentance with the promise of forgiveness. And here's the other beautiful news. Jesus is the only one who was empowered and prepared to offer this. 
Jesus was the only one that was empowered and prepared to offer forgiveness. Okay? So that's where we find ourselves right now. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I just did it again. It's not in the beginning, right? What does it say? The beginning. And yet, just like in Genesis 1, we have a new beginning here. In fact, this is the way that Paul describes Jesus. He describes him as the new Adam. And here we have a new beginning in Jesus Christ. So gospel, what does this mean? It means good news. When we think of a gospel, we're usually, especially when we say the gospel of Mark, we're thinking about a book, right? We're thinking about a couple of pages in our Bibles. And yet, it's more than that. It's the good news, the way that Mark is telling us the good news, right? And so that's what we're going to be looking at here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then we begin to see what this gospel is made up of. Okay. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, it's not actually from Isaiah. It is and it isn't. Okay? Here we have two quotations of Scripture coming together, one from Malachi and one from Isaiah. And here's the interesting part. Mark doesn't say anything about Malachi. And this tells us something about the way that we should understand this Old Testament text. We're told here in that that if we want to understand Malachi, we got to understand Isaiah. And if we want to understand Jesus coming, then we have to understand these two texts. We have to understand how important it is. If we want to understand who John the Baptist is, we have to understand these two texts from the Old Testament. And we're going to understand it through Isaiah's eyes. Okay? Malachi 3.1 is where the beginning of this quotation comes from. And it's actually a quotation that's talking about judgment. That the Lord is coming and there will be judgment. And yet, Isaiah 40, verse 3, we see that this is the promise of restoration. It is the promise of God leading His people out of exile, out of captivity, leading them on a new exodus, saving them from their captivity. So Isaiah is announcing this new exodus. That's what we studied together in the text of Isaiah. So then when we read in verse 4, John appeared. John the Baptist, out of nowhere, comes onto the scene here. And this is what John the Baptist is saying. And this is... Um, what John the Baptist is doing. He is the one out in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. This is significant. We didn't talk about this last week. It's good that we talk about it this week. Why is it important that John is in the wilderness? It's not just because Isaiah says so or Malachi says so. 
It's important that he's in the wilderness because the wilderness for Jewish people is an important place. It's also a scary place. It's a place where when they were taken out of Egypt, um, God had freed them and yet they got lost in their sin. And they were not entering the promised land until they repented of that sin. See, for a Jew, the wilderness is a place where they think about fearing being away from God because they're not in the land that he has promised to them. And yet they also fear not repenting in the wilderness. The wilderness for a Jew closely relates to repentance. So John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why are people getting baptized? And some Jews did different kinds of baptism, okay? Um, But here, baptism is being used in a whole new way. It's a symbol... It's a sign to others saying that you are turning away from your sin and you're turning to God. This is what repentance is. Turning away from your sin and turning to God. If we were to continue studying in Isaiah 40, we would see that one of the beautiful things about this new exodus is that there will be forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what John is preaching here. He's preaching that with repentance, there is the promise of forgiveness. For you and I today, if we turn away from our sin and we turn to God, there is forgiveness for our sins. And I'm not just talking about, and John's not just talking about, and Jesus isn't just talking about a single moment in time where you say, yes, God, I'm all for you. I'm not with myself anymore. I'm with you. I'm turning away from it. And then you go back to normal life. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. That's not what John's talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And when we talk about repentance, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, One old dead guy used to say it like this, that repentance is not a one-time thing. Rather, it's something that goes on throughout the course of your life. It's something that we must keep doing. One confession uh, that uh, the churches throughout the ages have, one thing that churches throughout the ages have confessed is that we should always be repenting of our sin. We need to constantly be turning away from our sin and turning to God. Turning, uh, stop looking at ourselves. Stop looking inward and start looking upward to God. And we need to continually be doing this. There needs to be a constant turning away from our sin and a constant turning to God. This fits in with the theme of discipleship. It is a constant and continual call to be following Jesus. We're not always going to get it right. We're going to mess up. And you know what? That's the beautiful thing about everyone that was coming out to the wilderness to meet John is that they were being humbled and they were saying, I have messed up and I'm not prepared for the land that God has promised to us. We need repentance and we need forgiveness for our sins. 
and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now here's a beautiful thing. Um, we don't often, at least I don't like to talk about success in ministry, okay? But if there was someone that had a successful ministry, we could probably say it was John the Baptist, okay? Why? Everyone in Judea and all of Jerusalem is coming to him? That a crazy person wearing camel hair clothes and eating locusts and dipping them in wild honey could preach a message that would get over hundreds of thousands of people coming out to wait in a queue to be baptized? That's a good message right there. That's good news. Everyone had been waiting for good news. Everyone knew that there had not been a prophet speaking since Malachi. And everyone wanted to hear the word of the Lord, and now they're getting it in John the Baptist. See, John was given a mission back in Malachi, back in Isaiah. And he was successful. even though I don't like using that word. God made his mission complete. And we're going to see that happen here in just a couple of weeks more um, definitely. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That does sound strange, but uh, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we see that this is how the, the prophets of old dressed. Uh, we also have some hints elsewhere that uh, John the Baptist had taken some vows, made a certain promise to God to say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, and I'm going to prepare for the work that you have given me to do. And that's exactly what he did. So when people saw this man preaching out in the wilderness, they knew this man is carrying the word of the Lord. Unlike our prophets today, he was not dressed in a three-piece suit and driving a BMW. He was dressed in camel hair, living uncomfortably in the desert. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We see in this gospel that John is preaching that there is going to be an opportunity for repentance. And in that opportunity for repentance, there is a guarantee of forgiveness. We also see in his ministry that the Lord is coming and he is going to be a greater baptizer than he is. He's not going to just be baptized in water as a symbol or a sign of, of something that you have done but this other baptizer is going to come, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, a permanent sign that is going to seal you. It's a permanent symbol of who you are, that you have been adopted by God the Father. In those days, now this is a strange, a strange phrase here, in those days. And it's strange because elsewhere, throughout all of chapter 1, we see Mark saying, immediately, immediately, immediately. Okay, I love it, because um, I don't know about you, I, I, love, I love dramatic movies, okay? 
But I found that since being a parent of four, I can't stay awake for a, for a dramatic movie to save my life, okay? I need action movies. I need something where there's noise and things are constantly happening. That's kind of like the Gospel of Mark. Just when you think you're going to get a breath and Jesus is going to do some teaching, it's like, nope, he moved on to the next place. And then he moved on to the next place. And then he did this. Then he healed this person. Then he took out this demon. And then he moved on to the next place, next place, next place. The action is constantly moving, except for right here, in those days. (laughs) Uh, What Mark's trying to say is just sometime during the course of John's ministry, now you got to understand, you got to understand, um, For John, he had most assuredly been called to the work that he was doing. But we're going to see later in the text, John even sends his disciples, people that were following him, to Jesus to say, are you the one that we should be expecting, or is there going to be another? Right? Even in a successful ministry, John had great insecurity. Even though he had already baptized Jesus, he had great insecurity. He wanted to know, Is everything that I'm doing in vain? Am I really a crazy person out in the desert wearing camel hair? Or are you the one that has been promised? Are you the Messiah? Are you our Savior? So in the midst of John's work in those days, while he's waiting for this Messiah to come, it's already been 400 years since the last time the Messiah was was promised. John's wondering where he's at in the timeline. He's saying, is it another 400 years? Okay. We'll come to that later, though, too. In those days, while John was ministering, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here's some cool things that come out of John baptizing Jesus. This is the first... uh, kind of outward approval that John has from God. He says, your ministry is not in vain. Why? Because this is my son in whom I am pleased. And you're baptizing him today. Um, We see in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 14, I'll read 13, Uh, Onward, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. So Jesus comes to be baptized, and John's thinking, nope, can't do it. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. (laughs) Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In that text, we see that why would Jesus get baptized by John? Did Jesus have sin to repent of? No. It says that we're here to fulfill all righteousness. This is a part of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What is he doing in this baptism? I think we see that Jesus is placing himself 
amongst his people. He's saying that, not that I'm just like you, that I'm, I have sin, but look at me. I'm doing what you're doing. Jesus becoming lesser. We see this throughout his whole ministry. He becomes a servant, right? He has come to serve, not to be served. In the same way, Jesus is humbling himself by being baptized by just a man. Is Jesus being baptized because he feared the judgment that was to come? Like the gospel that John the Baptist was preaching. See, John was preaching very similarly to Isaiah and the other prophets. He's saying, yes, there is a good day on the horizon, but it's not yet. First comes judgment. Is Jesus fearing this judgment? No, Jesus did not fear the wrath to come. He did not fear judgment. In fact, we read elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus is the one that is going to be judging. We see in Revelation 19 that Jesus is the wrath that is going to be coming. So Jesus was not fearing. But we see that Jesus is placing himself amongst his people. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, uh, I'm not making fun of any of this, okay? Because uh, I think it's a fine thing. Uh, throughout all of church history, God, the Holy Spirit, has been pictured as a dove. Why? Because we don't know how to draw a spirit, okay? <laughs> but we see here that God, the Holy Spirit, isn't a bird flying through the sky, but he is like a dove descending. Even now, that seems strange to me, okay? That seems like, why, why does it have to be a dove? Why can't it be an eagle? <laughs> right? Um, and yet, I think there's a couple reasons why we might see God the Holy Spirit being pictured as a dove descending upon Jesus here. I mean, very, very obviously and practically speaking, the descent of the Holy Spirit, the coming down of the Holy Spirit on Jesus is his empowerment to ministry. Because even though Jesus is God, we, we read um, elsewhere that he set aside all of that. He didn't set aside his godness, but he set aside his power and he set aside his authority. And he placed himself under the authority and the power of God the Father. And we see that God the Father is sending the Spirit here to be Jesus' power, to be the authority. Um, but we have pictures of a dove elsewhere. In fact, in Genesis... Chapter 1, uh, we see the Spirit hovering over the waters. In a very similar way here, like we talked about at the beginning in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. It's a new beginning here. The Spirit is hovering over the waters again. This is one way that we could look at it. We could also see Jesus as a provision. What happened when Noah sent out the dove, right? Dove comes back with a little branch. It's God providing for his people to say, 
This flood's not going to last forever. This judgment's not going to last forever. In Jesus, we see that judgment will not last forever, but that there is salvation. Or in Leviticus chapter 1, we see that a dove, for those that could bring nothing else, is an appropriate sacrifice for people to bring. And Jesus here is going to become our sacrifice. But again, very practically, we see that the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus is the full approval of God and Jesus' full empowerment to minister. And yet we also see here in these verses the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A mystery that Jews did not understand yet. That we would not have understood yet. That we still don't fully understand. But that God is three in one. The Spirit is not becoming the Son here. Jesus is not simply a Son that is becoming God. But we see the Godhead, three in one, presented to us clearly here in Jesus' baptism. Verse 11 again, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now we don't know if it was only Jesus that heard this. It's hard to tell from the different accounts and from any of the accounts it's very unclear. Maybe Jesus and John heard it. Maybe others, the disciples, <laughs> heard it. We don't, we don't know exactly, okay? Um, but what we can say is that here we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But interestingly enough, there in verse 11, we have the quotation from Psalm 2. We have a quotation from Psalm 2. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's the further confirmation of Jesus' ministry. It's the further confirmation or promise of who Jesus is to us. Move through things fast this morning. Uh, Forgive me for that. But also, as we see uh, from the text, immediately, 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 and we're going to be reading that next week. Um, in the early church, the Gospel of Mark, sometimes they would put pictures or symbols uh, in order to uh, signify what book was going to be read. And it was always a roaring lion, lion, like a prowling lion for the book of Mark because of its speed and its agility to move from one thing to the next. <laughs> Maybe it was because Peter too, I don't know. But um, that's really how we're going to be moving through the whole Gospel of Mark. Uh, in, a, in a fast way, but also in a slow way, verse by verse, okay? So what's our big idea for this week? Christian, you have been called to repentance, and I hope that for each and every one of you, you have taken that first step of repentance. For any of us in this room, uh, little ones in the back included, we have heard this enough times, right? 
God has been working in your life by you hearing His Word preached week in, week out. His Word read week in, week out. The truths of the Scriptures being sung week in and week out. Next week, we're going to um, have the Lord's Supper together, and I think we're going to share a meal together here next week. And we see the good news preached in that meal as well. So we have little excuse to have not repented, to not have seen who Jesus is. But the good news for us that have already, at one point or another, turned away from our sin and turned to God is that this is constantly available to us as disciples of Jesus. Each and every day when you wake up, when you go to bed, the opportunity for you to repent and the promise that when you speak to God and ask for His forgiveness, He will freely give it to you. Not only that, but He will graciously continue to save you from your sin each and every day. So with repentance is the promise of forgiveness. And as we see here in the beginning of Mark chapter 1, Jesus is the only one who was empowered and prepared to make a promise such as that. When John the Baptist baptized Jesus, it was the most physical, important, and public act of his ministry. And yet it is nothing compared to the ministry that Jesus was going to do. We see that John the Baptist is later called, uh, what does it say, um, the most important person born of a woman. That pretty much includes everyone, right? <laughs> that pretty much includes everyone. Except for we get the hint after that, that we too are even held up above John the Baptist because of the good news of Jesus that we possess that John the Baptist did not yet see in full. So Christian, you and I have a very privileged position. To be constantly repenting and constantly have the promise of being forgiven. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.